You know you've got to sing along. Don't you know This is the Cabinets HR Podcast, hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners, founders, and people in tech startups and HR. If you fall into one of these categories or are just curious about them, then this is the podcast for you. You will gain great insights from these great conversations. The Cabinets HR Podcast is brought to you by Cabinets HR. At Cabinets HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people by automating the HR process. We believe that you don't need a full-time HR person to receive full-time HR expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Cabinets HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Our guest today is Dr. Jeb S. Hurley. Dr. Hurley, are you ready to be great today? I am indeed. Dr. Jeb Hurley is a co-founder and CEO of Xmetrix, a team relationship management software company and author of team relationship management, thought of crafting extraordinary teams. Jeb began his career journey in the tech industry on new product innovation teams in Europe and Asia, followed by GM, VP, and CEO roles at companies ranging from Fortune 500 to VC-backed startups. He also co-founded three software companies. Jeb regularly speaks and writes about team leadership and improving employee well-being. He is also the author of The One Habit, The Ultimate Guide to Increasing Engagement and Building Highly Effective Teams. He has published over 60 articles on team leadership. Jeb has earned a doctorate in organizational leadership from Walden University with a research focus at the intersection of human motivation, employee engagement, and team effectiveness. Jeb, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jason. Good to be here. So, Jeb, talk a little bit about your, com- your company. And I'm not saying, how do you say your company's name? Is Xmetrics? You were very close. Xmetrics. It's Xmetrics. A, a traction of experience and metrics. So, um, measuring experience. So, how long have you been dealing, dealing with, that, with this company? So, we actually, um, we incubated and, and did the early software development in Singapore up through May of this year uh, when we returned to the U.S. and soft launched in May. So we're really a kind of a a baby of a company, but with uh, strong roots and had the good fortune of a lot of strong support from uh, multiple companies and corporations from around the world as we were uh, developing the idea and the software that went with it. So is it more of a, a software company or, or a consulting company or a combination? It is most definitely a software company, um, but we've recognized that um, and a big part of it emerged for Xmetrics. The whole idea emerged around um, rethinking the needs for uh, leader development and how we um, build extraordinary teams in the 21st century and really looking at that through the lens of relationships um, and behavioral science. And so the software itself um, is complemented with a um, tools that also give uh, team leaders insights and, and actions to, to help build extraordinary teams. But first and foremost, it's built around a core of software um, that helps them understand and manage relationships. So it seems like a lot of people in leadership are like old school. They're more like consultants, you know, one-on-one. How do you convince them to use a software platform? 
You know, that's um, a big part of the the challenge and, and opportunity, but the challenge for so many companies. And we did a lot of our pioneering work at, at Hewlett Packard at HP. Um, so you're looking at a, a large global, you know, um, organization. And the reality is that particularly for first level leaders, um, how you, how they develop and how they're trained can't be done in kind of 20th century, you know, no way are you going to send 10,000 leaders to, um, you know, young leaders to, to classrooms and the Lydia.coms and the, um, you know, the Skillsofts, while they provide some nice online content, again, it doesn't give young leaders the experiential learning that they need in order to become effective, um, particularly with the single point of struggle for many, which is uh, around how to manage and develop the relationships that ultimately lead to um, team performance in terms of uh, both the results of the team, but also the well-being of the team members themselves. Yeah, what's your vision for the company? That over time, we make a, a huge impact on the lives of millions of uh, work lives of millions of people around the world um, by helping ensure that, you know, every day they get up energized by what they do because the experience they have um, on their teams is exceptional in terms of not only what they accomplish, but in terms of their level of engagement and well-being, you know, mental and physical um, as being part of that team and that organization. Yeah, there's a platform for leaders teaching other leaders is it for certain size organizations who's a platform actually for so it's it's really designed um specifically well you know teams is big right i mean there's lots of teams everywhere um but it's really designed specifically for uh, first level um team leaders who are you know perhaps your first people leadership experience and you haven't and and you don't have a lot of resources available to you and having a, a set of tools and the ability to to get data in and insights that enable you to um, to learn rapidly how to build trusting relationships on teams that's the core so you know the uh, we've found that the uh, the most immediate sort of set a sense of urgency is around organizations that really depend on their teams for growth and innovation. So you see a lot of that in the tech sector, um, R and D teams, high value knowledge teams, um, and and virtual teams um, that are spread out. Where you know building relationships on that team in order for them to be effective is a real challenge, particularly for uh, new leaders. Yeah, and I know a lot of companies have a channel like they'll promote so much a management team, management role, but no, no, nothing in place to train them to be the new role, you know? Ex well, exactly. And, and often the training that, uh, that young leaders get is very 20th century in the sense that it's, there, there was something called the input process output model, IPO. And there's some modifications to it, but it's very process focused. It's, you know, you set up your team, you know, you, you, you do A, B, C, D. Well, that's all well and good, except in the real world, there's people involved. And so it gets messy. You know, you've got, you know, you've got as a new leader, you've got to be able to simultaneously, um, you know, get people to engage around the goals you've set for this team, but also work effectively together. And that means, you know, taking a disparate set of values 
and experiences and somehow forge those into a group of people who are going to work pretty seamlessly together to accomplish something. And that's why so often the result, they, there's a struggle and the results um, disappoint. Another challenge too is something as simple as, you know, you have five people on a team, one person becomes a leader. Well, the day before your buddies, teammates, you know, going to drink beers together or whatever the case may be now, you're in charge of them. Like, how do you, how do you do that? Right. Exactly. And again, if I look at the 20th century was dominated by what I sort of call a heroes and hierarchy model, where people grew up with the sense that leadership meant I'm at the top, everybody else is below and kind of command control. This is what we do. And that just, you know, in the 21st century, and particularly with the combination of flattened organizations technology that enables the globalization and virtualization and, you know, a generation, particularly millennials and now Gen Z that have very different expectations, you got to get good at shared leadership and at recognizing that, you know, your job is not to command and control, but it's to help people do their best and be their best in accomplishing something. And that's a very different set of, of, experiences and learnings for team leaders than, you know, the managers in hierarchical organizations of the 20th century. So it's a big shift for people. Jeff, on your LinkedIn, on your about page, it says, my, my experience and passion are helping organizations develop extraordinary, extraordinary teams. Can you define what, or, what extraordinary teams mean to you? Yes. Um, and I had the good fortune of, of during my doctoral research to work with some and uh, observe some pretty extraordinary teams, uh, fighter pilot squadrons and sort of other extreme teams. And, you know, to me, what made them extraordinary was two things. One, their ability to get the job done. You know, so to set an objective and together work to achieve it. But even more impressive was their focus on developing and sustaining strong, trusting relationships. They were these guys and girls were all about the, the trust and the relationships they developed. And that really became the inspiration for um, as well as the algorithms for what we did in the Xmetrics radar software was how do we help? You know, your everyday team do what these extraordinary teams do. And, you know, you can't there. It's different, right? If you're a fighter squadron or a Navy SEAL team, you've got lives on the line and you can't afford a, a gap in relationships because as one of the fighter pilots said to me, you know, if we go out with, without absolute trust, somebody's not going to come home. And that corporate world's of course different than that. You know, it's, it's a, it's not the 1% of the 1%. It's a more distributed bell curve of skills and interests and abilities. But there's still a human, drive, human need um, and desire to be part of something that is bigger than you, where trust and, and strength of relationships uh, prevails. And that's what extraordinary is. It's something that delivers not only, you know, the bottom line, but also the well-being side where people really are genuinely energized and engaged. And, um, you know, it's a, the kind of experience that we all look to repeat. So, Jeb, why is it you have some team with superior talent, you know, the best of best, and they underperform? Other teams have average talent and maybe even, you know, inferior talent and they like exceed all the expectations. 
Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, that dynamic. And we see it, you know, we've seen it in, you know, is visible, you know, in areas like the, you know, the U.S. basketball team, right, at the Olympics, the first time versus the next time and again and again. And you know, the dynamic there, you know, is always the same. It's, you know, what is the, the mo- what are the motivational drivers that though when those individuals come together, do people have, and they share a few things. One, you know, does the team itself share a purpose? And is it clear? Um, second, are there a clear set of norms and values by which those individuals collectively set expectations? And then individually, you know, are they motivated to, to achieve that purpose and to be part of that team and share its values. And when, when organizations don't, whether they're athletic teams or you see meltdowns in organizations like a WeWork or an Uber, where you know, the lack of consistency in terms of how norms, value, and purpose disseminates in an organization, you get all these shades of gray, and suddenly you've got people going off doing things. Perhaps they think it's the right thing to do, but it's completely misaligned with the rest of the organization and team. Whereas teams that just function, you see it, right? When a team is functioning well, they share, not only do they share those values, those norms and that purpose, but they use them to guide and assess um, themselves. And that creates a a positive self-reinforcing cycle. And they get very good at closing the inevitable gaps that happen when human beings, you know, we have expectations of each other we don't always deliver an experience that meets that. They get very, very good at closing those gaps. Whereas teams that underperform, you know, they're actually pretty bad at it. They kick issues around under the table like it's a dead fish and don't, they don't set it there, deal with it and move on as a team. Yeah. For me, the example of me, has always been, I think the 2004 NBA final, here, the Lakers, Shaq, Kobe, Gary Payton, Carmelo, basically five all-pro, all-star players. And Detroit had basically like role, role players, right? And Detroit beat them four games a run. And on paper, there's no way that's going to happen, right? But, and Detroit blew them out every single game, right? It's like, how does this happen? Exactly. And you can see it, ha- you know, you can watch it happening on the floor, right? Where, you know, you've got superstars and it's, and, and again, it's, I, I, I'll use the example of these, uh, this, I had dinner one night, I had the good fortune with an Israeli fighter pilot. Uh, squadron. And they were talking about, I mean, they said, you know, we probably have the biggest egos in the business, right? We're the 1% of the 1%. We know it. We strap ourselves into flying bombs every day. But when we walk into that operations room, there's not an ego allowed in the room. You know, we're there for one reason. It's to accomplish a mission. And when we look each other in the eye, we need to have absolute trust that, you know, we know when somebody look, just glances left, glances right, we know what he or she is thinking, what they're going to do. And that's the key. And you see that, as you said, Detroit, these guys, it's like they were, they had a shared consciousness. They were mind reading out there. And, you know, it didn't matter how good the individual player was on the Lakers. Um, they were one step ahead that whole series. Jeb, how does working remotely affect teams? Well, significantly in that, you know, those same dimensions become amplified. You know, what doesn't change is that you still have human beings needing to come together to accomplish a goal. The challenge for that team and for that team leader is really amplifying the clarity of purpose, of the values by which the team will operate, ensuring that they're, you know, 
position to inspire motivation of every individual on that team, and then deal with the inevitable challenges that come up in terms of gaps around what people expect of each other uh, versus what's happening. But you're having to do all of that virtually and remotely. So, you know, the skill sets of of really good virtual team leaders in many ways have to be, you know, they, they have to be a step above someone who has the luxury of looking people in the eye around a table or in the office every morning. So if you have a remote, a remote team, how important is communication versus being, is communication more important for remote teams than it is for a team that sees everyone every day? You know, that, it's, that's a good question, Jason. I don't know that it's more that it's more important in the sense that I believe communications is critical no matter what. I think it's the your ability to get it's how you communicate and your ability to read the as a leader. And, and actually as a team to be able to read the signals coming in. And this is actually where going back to X metrics radar, the software, that's why we focus on, you know, fast feedback, just three questions and, and visualizing relationship strength on a team, because that's the piece that tends to, you know, silent killers creep in and on virtual teams, it can happen. You know, it's, it's like a, you know, a cancer is somewhere, you know, somewhere on your body that metastasizes before you, before it gets caught. And the whole idea is that it's, you know, it's not necessarily the frequency or duration of communications. It's absolutely the content of it. So in remote teams, what's really critical is the content of the communications gets at and identifies any issues very early because you know, otherwise you have some, you know, you have people sitting in remote locations feeling like, you know, feeling they had a bad experience and there's nobody to talk to. There's nobody, you know, it's, so it just kind of boils inside and people begin imagining, you know, that this is going wrong or that's going wrong. And you can't just walk down the hall and have a chat with one of your colleagues about it. So uh, getting at those things is cr- the, the content of the communication is critical in remote teams. Yeah. Can someone learn? Okay. Someone be taught how to be a good team member. Absolutely. How do you go about doing that? Like, what, so any certain method? Is it one size fit all or just, just based on the person? Well, I think it's so there's two demands. That's a great question because my a lot of my work was done um, across um, all, uh, all literally all of Asia. So from Japan to India, from China to, you know, Australia, New Zealand and everywhere in between. And one of the things that I quick you quickly learn when you're working in that kind of multicultural environment is number one, there's no way that I, I could go in and tell a, a, a manager or people leader in India how to be a good manager as an Indian, right? Or as, a, as someone who's Chinese or Japanese, right? Because they have a, a, there's a culture, there's a style, there's a lot of elements there. However, if you get down to what we need as humans in order to be effective as part of a team, so again, clarity of purpose, shared values, you know, what, it, what motivates us as a person at work around our individual purpose, developing the competencies to realize that purpose and having the freedom to pursue it, and then identifying gaps and closing them, that is universal. So, you know, the means by which you develop not only you know, great team leaders, but also build extraordinary teams at a human level is constant. How that's done will have its, you know, its cultural and its personality flavors. So, you know, even within one organization, you can have, you know, if you can have five teams, 
And they'll all approach it a little differently in terms of stylistically and the values or the norms that team agrees to operate by. But the key is that they operate by them. That, you know, that is the way we run our team collectively. People agree to it. They use it to assess and guide behavior. And that's seems like, you know, it, it looks like magic, just like it did with Detroit. It's not, you know, it's hard work and it's recognizing that you know, the key to conscious leadership, being mindful of those human dimensions. You know, again, it's looking at leadership through the lens of relationships, not just traits or, um, you know, or processes. Yeah, right. When I was in the Army, you know, we dealt with Italians, Germans, Koreans, different countries. Each country does things differently, right? So you have to, you know, kind of tailor different ways. And yeah, good point. Um, so how does the role, how does it, someone be an introvert, extrovert, Meyer Briggs, personality tests, all that, all that kind of stuff play with, play roles with teams? So, so there's the psychometrics, broadly, what you just described, you know, they play, of course, personality and, and the way personality manifests itself plays out in your, those interactions with everybody, all the dynamics on a team. So again, if you, if you stay in recognizing that first and foremost in yourself, I think the, the biggest benefit of some of those assessments like Berkman, Myers-Briggs, you know, uh, the California uh, personality inventory are from a mirror standpoint. In other words, you learn something about yourself and, and therefore through that recognize in others. But, you know, in, in the real world where people are cha- you know, changing tires on moving cars every day, no, no one sits in a team meeting saying, oh, see an INTJ, see an E. I mean, seriously, that doesn't happen. But, you know, being able to recognize your own strengths and defaults from a personality when you, as long as you, again, focus on those, those human dimensions that don't vary, you know, they, if we agree to a set of norms or values on our team and we don't vary from that, we use it to assess and guide, it doesn't matter what somebody's personality is. What does, what, what, when it matters, it's usually because it causes a gap somewhere along the way, you and I will, you know, we may find we're not quite on the same page. And that's where getting good at closing those gaps, kind of going back to the, you know, the fighter squadrons or any elite teams, the key is that we learn, you know, experientially, both as a team and as a a leader, we get very good at recognizing and learning to close quickly gaps between what we expect of our teammates, our leader or other teams, and the experience we have. Because that's the key to trust. You know, you think about any important relationship in your life and the 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 core of trust is that you consistently deliver against a set of expectations it's also the way in which relationships deteriorate and disengage you know is that breaking of that trust is always expectations that fall short consistently against an experience jeb is it easier for a great team to become a bad team or is it easier for a bad team to become a great team Interesting question. And I've, I've, you know, I've, I've not, uh, my sense would be that, and I'm just going to give you an opinion here because, you know, a lot, I try to be pretty data driven (laughs) and first principles, but I think sustaining greatness is more challenging than, than putting in the effort perseverance to get there because, and that, that kind of goes a little bit to goal theory and what happens, you know, once you've become a top performing team, 
I think it's pretty easy to, you know, you really got to stay with it. And your motivation to do so is a, is a bit different than when everybody's working hard to get there. And so that's just, you know, if I take a little bit out of behavioral science, motivation theory and goal theory, I would, I think sustaining and staying on top can be more challenging than, you know, that, that really focused effort to get there. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that there's never been like a 10 time Super Bowl champion, right? Back to back to back to back years, right? Yes, exactly. It's, it's tough to stay there. And even, you know, even when, even when you have a machine, like, you know, some, some Super Bowl, you know, some football teams or, or, you know, European, you know, soccer or, or European football, it's tough to sustain that. But that effort to get there, you know, people usually when they, when they come together as a team and really want it, that um, the motivational level there tends to uh, take, to drive you. Jeb, can a good team overcome a bad boss? Yes. And it's never easy. You know, it's if the, the powerful thing about um, the collective, you know, a shared consciousness and focus on goals in organizations is that a, a poor team leader, you know, with a, with a strong team, you know, they, they won't have necessarily the, you know, kind of an extraordinary experience in getting there, but the very nature of teamwork can overcome again. It's like having, you know, you got, you got a problem area in one, you know, I got a sore muscle, but I can work around it if I get everything else working well. Um, so yes, it can, but, um, you know, but it's tough. It's, you know, in the real world, you know, the, the reality of toxic bosses and it depends on the level of toxicity, um, can be really difficult for groups or teams to over, to, to overcome. And a lot of that then plays into the culture of the organization. You know, if you have a culture broadly that supports the autonomy for teams to get the job done, you know, weak team leaders can often be, um, kind of, ride along with the team as they get it done. Um, in the then more hierarchical organizations, uh, toxic bosses, boy, it's tough for people because, you know, they tend to, they tend to control information, information flow, and um, that kind of toxicity. Uh, in, in unfortunately, in reality, very difficult. And the challenge is most toxic bosses think they're actually the best bosses around, don't they? Oh yeah, it's the it's the uh, that cognitive bias known as the superiority bias. It's kind of like if you go out and interview a thousand drivers, you know, nine hundred and ninety five will say they're in the top ten percent of all drivers. Even when you give them tickets and accident, it's always somebody else's fault. And it's exactly right. You know, as the jet pilots say, you know, everybody thinks they're a jet pilot, right? That's when they look in the mirror. It's like, oh yeah, I'm great. And so often, uh, those are the individuals who really don't learn very well. They're not very good at taking the lessons and their, their egos get too caught up and, and, and their identities with their role. So anything that seems to threaten it, they, they shut off. Jeff, as, as an organization, can you build great teams if you do not have a great culture? Do you need a great culture to build great teams? Or are they separate in your mind? Yeah, so in, my, so in both my mind, I guess, you know, kind of empirically and, and experientially, Culture is, is a derivative. It's, it's like engagement, right? So it's think of it as miles per gallon, right? You can know your car is getting lousy miles per gallon, but that doesn't tell you why or how to fix it. So you can have low engagement or you can seem to, you can have a poor culture, but neither one of those tells you why. 
um, or how. Whereas if you flip it around and say, wow, if I build extraordinary teams based on a set of values and purpose, I'm going to build a great culture. That's the key. That's where, you know, start in the startup world, when it's done right, you know, you look at companies like Pixar that who, you know, in prep post Disney acquisition, harder to say, but for years, you know, you, if you listen to any interview of anyone from Pixar, all they talk about was from day one, how they just all shared this, this purpose and, and a collective set of values, the way they got along and the way they operated and what they produced was phenomenal. And that created the culture. So it's not as though, you know, culture is, you know, people use it as though it's some, you know, something to be somehow acquired. No, culture is a manifestation of the human interactions that happen from, you know, from early on in an organization. If you get it right, you're going to get a great culture. You get it wrong, that, you know, that derivative called culture, you got to go back to the basics to fix it. Otherwise, you know, it's not some, you know, somebody coming in with a strategy or a set of surveys or whatever at, the, at a high level and is going to fix your culture. No, it's like fixing your miles per gallon without understanding, you know, what actually is going wrong inside the engine. I remember I just read, a, I just read an article on Pixar a few days ago where Steve Jobs actually designed Pixar's building where the bathrooms were essentially located. So it would make, so he, you know, a few times a day, all his employees, at least a few times a day, will come in contact with each other from different departments. He purposely did that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they, uh, I think, you know, they flourished, you know, they, they, they got the an injection, I think, you know, at least from the history I've read of the Pixar. And then, you know, as, as Steve left and, and really focused his attention on Apple, they just built again, they built a culture, but that culture emanates at the end of the day from the human experience that gets created by the people who are part of that organization. Jeb, can you talk some about your experiences in Singapore? Oh, sure. <laughs> Singapore was amazing. Um, you know, on so many levels, it, it was actually, uh, it was a bucket list and business opportunity that turned into, uh, you know, it was going to be a couple of years that turned into almost eight, um, became home. And it, I think the, for us, the most extraordinary part of Singapore was it's multiculturalism. I mean, the, you know, whether it was my, my teams there of the, with that, probably represented 15, maybe 20 different nations or just socially, you know, you'd find yourself out, you know, with friends and, and in any given moment, you're getting a, 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 a view of the world through the lens of someone from, you know, from, from Europe, some, from somewhere in Asia, from somewhere in Africa, or, you know, it's so multicultural. And that is incredibly enriching if you open yourself up to, you know, seeing the world and listening to ideas that are different than your own. Uh, in, in addition, it's a foodie. If you're a foodie, um, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, the kind of the restaurants and it's certainly one of the most modern and well-run safe uh, places on earth. And I guess you do, you're able to do a lot of traveling while you're there throughout Asia. Yeah. The good fortune of uh, spending a lot of time, for, you know, in, uh, and I previously lived in Japan and, and lived in Europe, but the time in Singapore offered an opportunity to spend time uh, because again, my teams were spread out across all of Asia. So I spent a lot of time uh, uh, throughout the region. Deb, can you talk some about, about your book, Team Relationship Management? Yes, the art of crafting extraordinary teams. Yeah, that really was a product of uh, a couple of years. Uh, my doctoral research, uh, my first book, The One Habit, was I 
kind of put out as a way to test some some concepts. Um, the team relationship management really was intended to be a, a working guide for team leaders who are looking for a not a prescription, but a set of principles based on human behavior and behavioral science that they can apply literally the next day that will not only improve the performance of a team and help it, you know, increase the engagement, but equally importantly, kind of going back to the mission you asked me about uh, for the org for X metrics, um, that you really affect people's lives by the experience you create for them at work and kind of tying into the, you know, sort of human resources and human resource development, not just as a function, but as a responsibility as a leader um, to, elevate the experience of your of your team and do so in a way you know that you know that's the legacy you want to leave as a leader so so team relationship management is all about how to do that um, in a very straightforward simple and easy to implement set of practices that came from the behaviors of extraordinary leaders and extraordinary teams um, that i observed and worked with um, over a period of uh, six or seven years and have you you're going to point out things so many people out that they think that Focus. They think the personal leaders like to like have followers, but really the focus of a leader should be to build more leaders, right? Exactly. That that is, you know, and and in fact, I think and and not everybody wants to take on formal responsibilities for people management in an organization, and that's fine. But leadership is so much more than that. You know, we every person on a team, if they view part of their role is to help everyone else uh, to be their best and do their best, that's leadership. I mean, that is what leadership ultimately is. And that's what creates an extraordinary experience for people. And, you know, in the end, you also end up delivering, you know, growth and innovation and, you know, the things that the organization is looking for. Uh, but the coolest thing is that you also create an environment in which people thrive as human beings. And to me, that's, you know, that's the kind of the social mission of what we do is to really you know, bring the lens of behavior and behavioral science and, and the tools um, to everyday team leaders. Also, I think a lot of leaders judge themselves too short term. Like, they'll think, okay, I'm a leader now. Next year, I'll know if I'm a good leader. What's more like, no, you won't know if you're a true leader until five, 10 years from now. Oh, yes. I think that's, uh, you know, the, and in fact, you know, the, the there's been some interesting research around um, through a, a number of, I think McKinsey, I believe it was McKinsey, but I could be uh, wrong with that, had done a study of about 5,000 senior leaders and they called it peak experience. They asked them about their peak experience throughout their career. And it was all about, you know, no one said, well, back in, you know, in, in 2011, in the fourth quarter, we beat our numbers by 27%. No way. All they talked about was their experience leading and creating teams that years later, people remembered them. You know, that was their legacy is that, you know, people would come up to them and say, wow, that was such a great experience being part of your team, being on that team. And the, yeah, that takes, it's like fine wine. It takes some time to, you know, to build it first, to build it, to age it, and for it to really mature in a way that, and that's not to say that someone can't come in as a young first time people leader and make an impact. But I think, you know, as a leader, you know, the real rewards come over over a period of time in a career where you can see the impact you've had on people um, and their careers and their development. Jeff, I understand you have a, a something for our listeners today. Oh, yes, indeed. The uh, 
Thank you for asking about the book, Team Relationship Management. Um, if our listeners, if they go to uh, my website, um, the book is available on Amazon and, and via Kindle, but drjebhurley.com, there's a, uh, they can get, there's a 10% discount um, on the book from Amazon or Kindle. And if they put in the code SHIPFREE2019, the, the shipping is also uh, free and it's a signed copy um, as well. Jeb, can you give our listeners your social media links so people can reach out to you? Sure. So the, um, uh, my LinkedIn is just, you just simply go to Jeb Hurley. Uh, for the website of the company, it's xmetrics, xmetryx.com. And my website is drjebhurley.com. And for our listeners, we'll have the links to his resources and our social media links on our, on our show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cabinetshrblog.com. Also, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Cabinets HR podcast. Jeb, what kind of enable talk? Can you give us any last minute wisdom or, or advice on any, anything you want to talk about? Well, again, I think that you know, for both the HR community, which I think to a large extent is, is part of your target audience, Jason, as well as you know anyone who is you know an aspiring or or a, in a leadership position, that you know focusing on you know, the lens of what you do on relationships and building strong trust and relationships and the behaviors associated with that is the key to building extraordinary teams in the 21st century. Deb, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Jason, my pleasure. Thank you and uh, happy holidays. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cabinets HR Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and TikTok at Cabinets HR. Also check out our weekly live streams at the Cabinets HR Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Periscope, where we focus each week on an HR topic important for small business. These are every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and last around three minutes. To join our weekly HR email newsletter list, send us an email to jasoncabinets at cabinetshr.com. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. You've got to pump it, don't you know, pump it. You've got to pump it.